the sounds of summer. Jonas, we need your help. We're detecting increased aquatic activity 25,000 feet deep in the trench. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there is trying to make its way to the surface. This is a bad idea. Just a little bit. And we've already had some smash hits at the box office. Some things have been happening that might be related. We're in a race against the Nazis. So cool. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? I'm actually not sure. Now, it remains to be seen if the Meg 2, The Trench, will be a threat to some of the summer's best movies. As of Sunday, August 6th, it's consumed over $45 million. Most likely, the Meg 2 won't hold a candle next to Barbie or Oppenheimer, but we have sharks to thank for summer blockbusters at all. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and AZ Central about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm Kaylee Monahan, your tour guide for this episode. And today, we're heading into deep water to talk Arizona sharks. It was the film that started it all. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> A mechanical beast, affectionately named Bruce, terrorized audiences in 1975. Jaws is credited as being the first summer blockbuster. And it's been a battle of summer cinematic epicness ever since. But Arizona and sharks don't mix. Or do they? To understand Arizona's shark connection, you first need to look into our region's geological history. And for that, I headed to the Arizona Museum of Natural History in Mesa. At least several times that Arizona has either touched the ocean, been completely under the ocean, had different corners of it kind of being seaway at different times. This is paleontologist Gavin McCullough. Fans of the podcast might remember him from our Arizona Dinosaurs episode. Today, we walked through the museum's galleries that show a timeline of Arizona's making. 
One of our region's most fruitful ages in terms of aquatic life was the Pennsylvanian period, followed by the Permian. For context, the Triassic period came after the Permian, and that's when the first dinosaurs appeared. So this means that sharks existed before the dinosaurs. And their descendants are still alive today. But back to prehistoric Arizona. This is about 300-ish million years ago in, in sort of round numbers. And it's represented mostly by this chunk of rock called the Naco Formation. The rocks of the Naco Formation kind of generally show up in central Arizona, kind of around the Payson area, and kind of make a, 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 a crescent down into southeastern Arizona. And that's where we have a lot of sea beasts most of which are non-vertebrates. These included early corals, snails, and clams. Shark-like creatures called Glickmanias started showing up in the fossil record around this time in the Nako and Kaibab formations. And to be clear, when using the term shark with these prehistoric creatures, it really refers to all cartilaginous fishes. And there is a broad spectrum, but we'll be focusing on the sharkiest looking species. Now, savvy paleo nerds might be saying, cartilaginous? Cartilage doesn't fossilize. How do we know about these creatures? Well, first of all, cartilage can fossilize. Under the right conditions, the cartilaginous skeleton and sometimes the outline of their soft tissues, so skin and body shape, can be preserved. In addition to these rare fossils, teeth and scales have also been found. Both modern and prehistoric sharks have a unique skin that looks like tiny teeth under the microscope. These toothy scales are called denticles, and fossilized denticles can be quite common in certain dig sites. During the Permian period, Arizona was part of the supercontinent Pangaea, and large sections of what would become our state were either covered in or abutted shallow seas. Continuing the tour of evolving Arizona, we went from the Permian to the Cretaceous period. Now the Cretaceous was the age of reptiles, and they dominated both land and sea. Cretaceous Arizona boasted some very fascinating marine reptiles, including mosasaurs, 
think of Jurassic World and the oversized, finned crocodile-looking animal. We also had our own pleosaurs that looked like small Loch Ness monsters. But the predecessors of both sharks and their cousins were carving out niches amid these monstrous-looking sea creatures. There were sharks. Sharks were doing fine at this time, but these were the big things in the water. Were these big reptiles? Yeah. They probably ate some sharks. Oh, probably. And sharks probably ate them too. I think everybody tries to eat everybody in the carnivore guild, right? When you're like, "Well, shh, are you? Can I take you? I'm gonna see if I can take you. Fit in my mouth." I even like to kind of think about how things like whale sharks and basking sharks—we think of them as kind of slow, peaceful. They're still carnivores. They're still eating other animals. They're just a lot smaller. There's well over a、uh, hundred species for sure. Maybe a couple hundred. Who knows? I haven't quite counted them all yet. This is J.P. Hodnett, another paleontologist from Arizona. So I grew up in Tucson, but he's currently living and working in Maryland. Gavin introduced me to him. Gavin, and I go way back. I knew Gavin like around high school, and I'm over forty now. So just kind of give you an idea how long we've known each other. Like many kids, dinosaurs were J.P.'s gateway into the world of paleontology, but at the time. He just didn't know how rich our state's fossil record is. I really didn't think Arizona had a lot to offer in terms of paleontology. I was dead wrong. When I got older and I started to get involved more with the paleontology community of Arizona, it opened my eyes to like what Arizona has to offer in terms of like ancient life. It's amazing. A lot of stuff we find in Arizona is unique. So I mean, everybody's like, "Oh, T. Rex, Triceratops." Like, no, no, no. There's some even more cool things coming out of our own state, and I still consider it. You know, even though I live in Maryland now, Arizona is still my home state. Initially, JP was interested in studying ancient mammals at Northern Arizona University, but a certain professor turned him on to prehistoric marine life. I started to take some classes with a paleontologist named Dr. Dave Elliott, and Dave kind of opened my eyes that there were interesting fossils to be found in and around NAU campus. So most of what that stuff was, they were limestone beds. They were dated roughly between. 270 to 260 million years ago, what we call the Middle Permian, and this is all pre-dinosaur age stuff. And he said, "Oh yeah, so try get this class."、Uh, he's like, "You pointed out that if you wander around campus, you there's a good chance you could find ancient marine life fossils on campus." So I was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." So. Walking basically from North Campus to South Campus one day, I look over one side off the pathway, and then yeah, in a limestone was a shark tooth, and I was like, okay, that's cool. So I I picked up the rock and took it back to Dr. Elliot, and he was like, well, that's a shark.、And、I'm like, yeah. From there, JP was hooked. 
that became kind of like a hobby of like what I did between classes and on my weekends was to hunt for shark fossils on school campus. And it kind of built up as a project. Along with Professor Elliott, JP started to dig around in Northern Arizona. Together, they connected with a fossil hunter named Tom Wilson, who specializes in Permian age specimens. Tom Wilson was collecting fossils from this timeline for quite a while in around the Flagstaff area. A prime spot ended up being the Kaibab Formation. So if anybody's familiar with the Grand Canyon, if you go to look over the vastness of the Grand Canyon, the rocks you're standing on on the rim is the Kaibab Formation. So turns out those rocks that you're standing on while looking over the vistas of the Grand Canyon are full of sharks. And that was one of the things that was a major discovery for us is that all of a sudden there's like this amazing fossil record of ancient fishes. So it kind of started a snowball after that. JP and his colleagues began discovering all kinds of weird and wild ancient fish across the Southwest, including some really bizarre prehistoric sharks. Diablo Dantes Michael Ebeni, the deviled tooth shark from Flagstaff. Draco Pristis Hoffmanorum, which has the nickname of the Godzilla shark. And there's a very tiny little early shark called Kuliela. We find it in Flagstaff. We also find it near Payson and the Grand Canyon. It's a dinky little shark. But this is like the great, 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 mini greats grandfather of like, you know, Megalodon. And it started off as a, its teeth are like the size of a pinhead. So this, this is a small shark, but you can trace it as this thing starts to get bigger over time, or at least in terms of the modern shark family tree. Speaking of Megalodon, did it swim in Arizona's prehistoric seas? Well, the short answer is... No, because when Megalodon occurred, there were no oceans or seaways in Arizona at that time. The dinosaurs had come and gone by the time the Meg evolved some 20 million years ago in the Mycene epoch. So that scene in Meg 2, where a Megalodon slides out on a beach to catch a T-Rex? All wrong. One of the biggest fallacies that a lot of people will talk about is, oh, Megalodon lived with T-Rex and stuff like that. And it did not. Megalodon is a more recent animal in our, in our geologic time period. So the likelihood of finding a Megalodon and T-Rex together is non-existent. JP says that there are some Arizona sharks that could rival Megalodon in both body and tooth size. So one of the ones I love to bring up, and a lot of people do not know about this, is there is a shark called Megatina pedalis. It's a very complex name, but it's a very cool shark. It actually has teeth that are as big or bigger than Megalodon teeth, including some of the biggest Megalodon teeth that most people are familiar with. And it's an interesting shark. The very first fossils found in the 1940s on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So if people want to see this, they should take a, a nice road trip up to the Museum of Northern Arizona and the Geology Hall. They have it on display. And it's a half a tooth. That's one thing I always want to point out. It's half the tooth. But in their collection, they have a good partial whole tooth. 
this is a shark that we found it not only in the Grand Canyon area, we found it right outside of Flagstaff, and also I have specimens from in Flagstaff. Sounds like we'll need a bigger, uh, trowel. Despite our region being dry during the Meg's rain in the ocean, JP says you'd probably want to be careful about going into Arizona's prehistoric waters. I think there's some other things that kind of just is probably maybe more spooky in terms of sharks. So I, I will go ahead and put my career on the line here, and I would argue that Megalodon, even though everybody loves to talk about it, there's movies about it now, is probably academically a boring shark, <laughs> at least for me. I like my sharks to be weird and wonderful. So kind of thinking about Megalodon, Megalodon in a lot of ways has been treated as kind of like a scaled up great white for a lot of its history in terms of its study. And don't get me wrong, great whites are awesome. Giant great whites, okay, who, who you know, that, that just boggles the mind. But there are sharks that at least, especially around Arizona, you know, these things will have like spines coming out of the face. There are some with whorls of teeth that could be even more massive than Megalodon. There are some that were eel-like and probably eight other sharks that have been found in the, around the Grand Canyon. And uh, they may not be gigantic, but they're just so bizarre and, and, and uh, just so cool looking, in my opinion. So uh, those are the ones that get me excited and usually find me in my dreams. Let us return to modern times and the cinema. Monster movies are an ever-popular genre, and shark movies fall under that category. To be clear, I'm not saying sharks are monsters, but Hollywood and other media outlets have made millions off of making sharks terrifying killers. You can point to Jaws as a catalyst for making the wider public afraid of sharks. Both the book, but even more so the movie, caused a panicked frenzy across the U.S. The monster hunt began. Ever since Jaws, shark populations have been severely impacted worldwide. In fact, you can see a spike in shark deaths after 1975. Shark and ray populations have declined by 70% in the last 50 years, and this is according to research published in the scientific journal Nature. To be fair, the main threat to sharks is overfishing or ending up as bycatch. But hunting sharks for things like shark fin soup or trophies is also an enduring issue. Galeophobia, or the fear of sharks, wasn't really widespread before the advent of Jaws. There's some research that shows a slight uptick in concern about sharks during the Cold War, but that was mostly contained to a certain demographic, the US military. It was worried that sharks might be dangerous to any water-based operations. The Navy sponsored a then-secret program to develop a chemical repellent dubbed Shark Chaser. 
allegedly, it didn't work so well. In the 1960s, shark scares made for sensational headlines in the media, but these were uncommon and disappeared pretty quick, like a flash in a pan. Sharks as an existential threat did not invade our collective consciousness until Hollywood made them monster numero uno. On average, about 100 million sharks are killed annually. Now bear in mind that sharks and their relatives have been on the planet for more than 400 million years. They have survived five mass extinctions. Sharks and their cousins are some of the most successful animals to ever inhabit our world. They were here before the dinosaurs, and likely they will be here after us in some fashion. To better understand these animals, I headed to the experts. Hi, I'm Dave Peranto, and I'm the Director of Animal Care and Conservation here at Odyssey Aquarium. Odyssey opened in 2016 and is the largest aquarium in the Southwest, with over 2 million gallons of salt water, all of which they must create on site. We have over 7,000 animals at Odyssey Aquarium and about 350 species. In total, in this building, we have around 15 species of sharks. And our largest is probably our lemon sharks. They're about nine to 10 feet long. And our smallest is probably our epaulette sharks, which are about two feet long. And everything in between, we have sand tigers, sandbars, black tips, white tips, zebras, bamboo sharks, and uh, the list goes on and on. When it comes to shark husbandry, you not only need to understand what each species needs, as far as food and space, but you also need to understand the pecking order within the group. We actually behaviorally modify our sharks here. They're trained to come to a target. One of our exhibits, we have seven different species of sharks. And when we go to feed them, they have a different target, which is a pole with a shape and a color on it. Each species knows that that's their shape and color, so it indicates to them that, okay, it's our turn to eat. By target training the sharks, their caretakers can make sure there's not a feeding frenzy with a whole group of sharks trying to go after the same fish. Dave says this technique also helps the keepers keep track of what each shark is eating and how much it's consuming. If one animal isn't eating well, it could be an indicator that something is wrong. And when it comes to veterinary care, the sharks are active participants. We also have trained our sharks to swim in the stretchers. So instead of us jumping in the water and trying to get a, a seven-foot shark to swim in a stretcher so our veterinarian can look at them, we've trained them to, through positive uh, reinforcement, swim in a stretcher, sit there, and we just pull the stretcher up so the vets can look at them and then allow them to swim away. So they are intelligent. It's all relative. Are they intelligent compared to us or like an elephant or even a dolphin? That's relative, but they can learn and do learn, especially here. And most of our training is based on either medical or behavioral. Not only does Odyssey provide the chance for Arizonans to appreciate sharks and many other types of marine life, but they work actively with experts in a variety of fields and even have opportunities for the public to get involved. We offer 16 of our guests to join us 
down in Baja, Mexico, and we bring one of our shark scientist researchers. He's actually one of the main researchers on Shark Week every year. And we have these guests become citizen scientists. So what we do is we go down, we're at a field station. We live there for the whole week. We go out and we swim with whale sharks all week and we get to identify them through pictures that gets uploaded to a global service. And also we work with Dr. Solkowski, our shark researcher, and we go out and tag mako sharks. Um, so we go collect and tag and release mako sharks. It's an amazing opportunity. And if anybody's interested, I, I suggest they get to our website and, and go and, and, and uh, it's, it's very basic living. You know, you live on cots outside under the stars. Um, uh, but I, I was able to, to lead that trip last year and it was, it was something that I'll never forget. But when it comes to dispelling the stigma of sharks being cold-blooded killers, Dave had this to say. Peter Benchley, who made Jaws, you know, he spent the rest of his life as a shark conservationist because he saw what that movie did to a lot of people. Benchley wasn't the only one to feel terrible after the release of Jaws. Steven Spielberg also apologized in an interview on the BBC's Radio 4 program, Desert Island Discs. That's one of the things I still fear, not to get eaten by a shark, but that sharks are somehow mad at me for the feeding frenzy of crazy sport fishermen that happened after 1975, which I truly and to this day regret the decimation of the shark population because of the book and the film. I really, truly regret that. Sharks look scary. They have big teeth. They swim faster than us. A lot of times, a lot of people like to go to the ocean. You can't see what's around you. You know they're out there. One of the reasons that I got into this field is when I used to swim as a child, I always imagined a shark chasing me because it was one of my biggest fears in the world. And I think it was also part of my motivation getting into this, like, okay, why am I scared? You know, let me start working with these animals. And they are misconceived quite a bit. Sharks aren't out to get us. They aren't looking for us every time we're swimming in the ocean. A lot of the times where you hear about sharks interacting with people in a negative way is because they think they're a seal on a surfboard or they don't necessarily believe that they're part of their prey. There are exceptions, but for the most part, they're just another animal swimming around in the ocean. One reason sharks might bite a person or a man-made object is simply out of curiosity. Sharks don't have fingers like us, or even whiskers like many mammals. The way they explore their environment is through touch and electrical currents. Often they'll do curiosity bumps and brush up against foreign objects to get a sense of what they are. Dave says that many times when divers are out on a shark dive, the animals are just circling around them because they're not really sure what they are. They also have electromagnetic sensors that go down each side. So it's kind of a, a sonar type thing, but they're able to use that to sense their environment as well. So a lot of times they're just exploring and trying to figure out who the heck we are and what we are.
Odyssey isn't the only place in the valley where you can see sharks and other marine creatures. The Phoenix Zoo has a ray and shark exhibit, which is currently undergoing renovations and should be reopening soon. But I got a sneak peek of the fish's temporary home. They can recognize us um, when they kind of come up above the water and you'll see like kind of their faces and their eyes poke up. That's them trying to get a better look at us from outside the water. They definitely do recognize their keepers. And this is one of them. Hi, my name's Michelle Sanzione. I am one of the ectotherm keepers here at the Phoenix Zoo, but my specific area that I'm in charge of is Stingray Bay and also our Uko tank located on the Uko Trail. Originally from California and trained in marine biology, Michelle didn't think she'd be coming to Arizona to work. When I first applied, I didn't even know there was a stingray tank until I started. And I honestly didn't even know what I wanted to do. I just got a job here. And a friend of mine that is a keeper here suggested that I did our volunteer keeper assistant program just for fun and to see if I like it and I volunteered on primates for about a year and a half and I fell in love and that's when I was like, this is what I gotta do for the rest of my life. And I started applying for positions. That first job was in the education department, but when the opportunity to work on Stingray Bay opened, she was quick to submit her application. Back out at the Ray Bay, Michelle explained what types of cartilaginous fish the zoo has. So we have about 26 cow-nosed stingrays. We have one blue-spotted ribbon-tailed stingray, and then we have one white-spotted bamboo shark, and then one brown-banded bamboo shark. Personally, the cow-nosed rays are one of my favorite types of rays. They're brown on top and creamy white on the bottom, their flat faces are reminiscent of a French bulldog. They look a little bit like stretched out diamonds, and they zip around their enclosure pretty quickly. And these rays are pretty curious. But we do have a couple of females in here that are part of our older group that will choose to come up to every single person in the bay that day. Yeah, Ellie is probably our most notorious ray in this tank. She will literally come up to every single guest She'll come all the way up to the top of the water to where her back's exposed, and she'll slow down for a full pet. <laughs> but after a long day of being adored, the rays will call it quits. Um, sometimes they'll immediately come over to us when uh, it's been like a busy day and they're just done with like the public. They'll come over to us and ignore everyone else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they know who brings the food. <laughs> I can completely relate. Rays and skates, which at first glance look like stingrays, diverged from the shark family some 200 million years ago. And like sharks, they come in a variety of body types, from the flat and rounded shapes of stingrays that tend to hover over the ocean bed, to the elegant manta ray that cruises the water column hunting for bites. Now, I did mention that the cow nose ray is one of my favorites, and Odyssey offers an opportunity to get in the water with them. 
1999 by Subsea Systems. So it takes math traditional scuba gear setup and puts it into one piece of equipment. It's your mask, it's your air, and it's your weights. These helmets do weigh 72 pounds on land. No reason to be nice to that because he's lifting 72 pound helmets. Um, and the air that is supplied by the Lulu Lines you see. I donned a wetsuit and a very modern looking diving helmet. It's not cold. It is not cold. Alright, you ready? Yes, let's do this. Yeah, have fun. Alright. I'm in. And there she goes. Kaylee is now underwater doing her dive. The first touch of the salt water felt chilly, but it quickly grew comfortable as my feet landed on the sandy bottom. To my left was a reef with various fish popping in and out of the crannies. The dive leader squirted some fish food in front of my helmet, and it was suddenly a swirl of colors in a feeding frenzy. Passing by was a flock of cow-nosed rays of various sizes. They watched me with interest, but kept their distance. It wasn't long before they grew confident and swam right up to check me out. They brush and bump up against me, and it felt like they were saying hello. The dive leader handed me some fishy snacks that the rays love. Now, rays don't have teeth like sharks. Rather, these cow nose have very flat looking teeth and they use these to chew and grind up their prey. When you feed them, it feels a bit like a fleshy vacuum cleaner sucking up the treat from your hand. And very much like dogs, they got friendlier after being fed. Also circling the tank was a zebra shark. Now the name might be confusing since it's actually spotted looking rather than striped, but it gracefully swam past just out of reach. This shark had its boundaries and it respected mine. And honestly, that was fine since the rays continued to crowd around looking for treats. The experience lasted only about an hour, but I could have stayed down there for many more. Many thanks to all the experts who made this episode possible. If you want to learn more about Arizona's prehistoric sharks, check out the Arizona Museum of Natural History or head up to Flagstaff to the Museum of Northern Arizona. To find out more about the sharks and rays in this episode, you can visit Odyssey Aquarium or the Phoenix Zoo. This episode of Valley 101 was produced by me, Kaylee Monahan. Amanda Luberto and Kathy Tulomelo provided production support. A shout out to our summer intern, Logan Stanley, 
who helped collect audio for this project. Videos of the shark experience at Odyssey are available to stream on azcentral.com. Thanks to Megan Mendoza and Diana Payan. The scoring for this episode comes from Universal Production Music. Additional sound bites belong to their content creators. See more behind-the-scenes footage of the making of this episode on our social media at AZC Podcasts. And as always, if you have a question about the Valley, send it to us at valley101 at azcentral.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.